0: come to you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord and our God, and we are grateful for this day and this journey which you've called us to be the disciples you've called us to be. And we pray, Lord, you would do that good work in us, as difficult as it may be, as we go back in order to go forward this day. Come, Holy Spirit, and do that work in us. For in Jesus' name I pray, Amen. Well, friends, we're in this discipleship journey. Week one, we learned what unhealthy discipleship looks like in the person of Saul. And we examined our lives to make sure there weren't any Saul-like tendencies in us. And we took the first step last week in going, uh, looking at ourselves and and recognizing that there's a true self which God calls us to. There's a true freedom to which God calls us to. That... We will be our most selves as we walk in Christ towards that, in the fullness of Christ. And to follow him is perfect freedom, as the prayer book says. Because our culture thinks freedom is freedom to fill in the blank. Freedom to do whatever I want. Well, that's called license. No, in Christ, where our true identity lies and God wants us to follow him in that, We'll have the abundant life we're looking for. We'll have the peace we're looking for. And we'll have the joy that we're truly looking for. And that's what we did this past week. And so this week we take another step because in order to discover that true freedom, you also have to go back and look at our families and recognize that and break any power that that may have over us as we walk in Christ. So I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 50. And we're going to look at 15 to 21. And we're going to look at Joseph's story, point number one. Point number two, Joseph's response. And then we're going to look at Joseph's identity. All right. Joseph's story, first of all, you know, it's, it's tough to summarize 13 chapters of Genesis, because Joseph's story starts in Genesis 37, and so he grew up as the favored, spoiled brat son of Jacob, you know, who we also know as Israel, and he had 11 brothers. You'll recognize their names, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Issachar, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Well, these are the 12 brothers whose names became the 12 tribes of Israel. And so his brothers, because he was the spoiled, favored son of Jacob, they didn't like him. And furthermore, he was close to the Lord and he received visions from the Lord and he lacked discernment he lacked um, poise in front of his brothers and tact and so he went to his brothers and said, hey guys I received this vision that one day you guys are going to bow down to me (laughs) you know that made him popular with his brothers plus he had that famous dream coat you know The, the beautiful coat of many colors you know it's not just a Dolly Parton song and a musical all right it's a real thing he, was, he was, had this beautiful coat, and so he was favored. And favoritism was practiced to a fault of Jacob, all right? And so his brothers being jealous of him, one day saw him coming to them, and they said, here comes that dreamer. Let's kill him. Well, they decided not to kill him, but instead throw him in a pit, and as a caravan came by, sold him off as a slave, where he eventually ended up in Egypt. They slayed a goat, and they covered his coat with blood, and they lied about it to their father, saying, He's dead, Dad. This is sad, isn't it? Well, they really weren't. They thought he'd never, they'd never see him again. Wiped their hands of him. Well, he went down into Egypt and he became a slave in the household of the captain of the guard of, Israel, of Egypt. The captain's name was Potiphar. And one thing the text tells us about Joseph is that he was a very good-looking young man. And so Potiphar's wife you know, was attracted to Joseph and eventually hit on him. She wanted a sexual encounter with him. And he couldn't sin against his Lord and against his master in this way. And so he ran out of the room. She grabbed his coat. And so she had evidence that he was in the room alone with her. And she claimed that he attempted to rape her. Potiphar was furious and had him thrown into jail. And while he's in jail, he's continuing to grow in his relationship with the Lord. Even in these, with these, all these injustices. And the chief cupbearer and the chief... Baker were there with him, and they received a dream. And they asked, could you interpret this? And he said, sure. So we interpreted the dream, and the dreams came true. The chief baker would be executed for his crime, and the chief cupbearer would be let free. And so as the chief cupbearer was released back to his position as the cupbearer for Pharaoh... He, Joseph asked him, please remember me. But the text says that he was forgotten for the next two years. Can you imagine all these injustices going on for Joseph? But then Pharaoh started having dreams. So he calls his magicians and his wise men. And he asks, interpret these for me. And they couldn't. And the cupbearer all of a sudden remembered Joseph. And he said, your majesty, in in the jail is a Jew who can interpret dreams. I was there. He interpreted correctly for me. And so Pharaoh calls Joseph into his presence, tells him the dream. He's got this dream that they need to store up seven years of grain. And Joseph interprets it that way. And then after that, there's going to be seven years of famine. Joseph nails it. So Joseph is immediately put in, in the second in command of all of Egypt in charge of this grain distribution program. This you know, storing of it, making sure we have enough for the famine that is to come. And it came true. So Joseph looks back on his life and sees all this and can see the hand of God in all of it. But then all of a sudden, his brothers come before him. Because there's no food in Canaan. And as they come forward, what happens is they bow down to him. Fulfilling his original dream years earlier. Can you imagine what Joseph felt at that time? They don't recognize him. He recognizes them. And he reveals himself to them. And so there we get to Genesis 50 where... He welcomes his family in. He provides for them. And then all of a sudden, as an old man, Jacob, who we also know as Israel, dies. Jacob dies, and so what's the natural inclination of their heart? We're toast. He's going to get us now. But before we even go to that in Joseph's response, let's look at how he got here. The blessings and sins of our family go back three to four generations and profoundly impact who we are today, my friends. It's a biblical concept. Exodus 34, 6, and 7. The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. It says the same thing in Exodus chapter 20, when he's giving out the Ten Commandments, that the Lord will visit the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands and those who love me and keep my commandments. This whole Hebrew word, visiting, could also be interpreting consequences. You know, he will will visit the consequences upon them. In other words, the habits that great-grandpa has, you're still doing. Okay? Because your grandfather did it, your, your, your father did it, and now you, father, and vice versa with the grandmothers and what have you. And we see this in the Bible. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, All practice favoritism of children, deceit, lying, cultivating sibling rivalry and the siblings cut off from one another in relationships and their marriages aren't that great. Really, when you look back at them and the reality for us in Jesus Christ requires a putting off of the sinful patterns of our family of origin and relearning how to live God's way in Jesus' new family, the church. That in Christ, we have more in common with even some of our blood families. All right? And we can't change what we're not aware of. You know, my goodness, my friends, you know, looking back at my life for the first 15 years of my marriage with Kimmy, I was the most selfish person you ever knew. And it took me 15 years just to realize that. And I didn't lead her well, didn't lead my family well. And I'm still a work in progress, quite frankly. And, you know, after 11 years, I left teaching, to go, uh, left teaching and coaching to go into ministry. I'm full-time ministry. And I'm still selfish, still not leading well. And I'm a minister! Just like Pete Scazzaro would admit throughout his book. So I encourage you to recognize and come to those hard realizations. That's not fun for me to admit to you. But it's true, and it's honest, and it's confession. And you can't, you have to learn from your past. Those who can't learn from their past are doomed to repeat it. And so, like, it's a saying at New Life Fellowship Church in New York City where Pete ministered for so many years. You've heard me say this. Jesus may be in your heart, but grandpa's in your bones. All right? So let's admit it. All right, so that's Joseph's story. Well, let's look at Joseph's response, verse 19. The first thing Joseph says, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? That's a rhetorical question. Obviously, no. And what Joseph is saying is, my heart's been changed, boys. I'm not going to retaliate. I've forgiven you. My heart is healed. Am I in the place of God? In other words, they they thought, you know, we're done for here. He's got a grudge against us. And he says, no, I don't because I'm not in God's place. And it's a good thing for us with the people of our past that we're angry with, that we have grudges against. Do you know everything about their background? Do you know all about the pressures that they were under? Do you know exactly how their father and mother treated them? Do you understand their cultural pressures? Um, Who has enough knowledge to know what people deserve? Not us. God does. Only God has the right to give people what they deserve. And Joseph is saying, I'm not going to hold a grudge. And holding a grudge can be two ways. First, it can be holding a grudge so that you can pay revenge, or you can hold a grudge so that hopes that someone else takes vengeance out on them. I did that quite frequently with our old outfit. Lord, I can't get them, but you can. Sick them, you know. Let fire get on that building, burn it down. You know, just whatever's going through my head. No, that's just toxic. And that type of feeling and holding a grudge will deeply damage you and bring devastation to you and to anyone around you. Look at verse 20. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Joseph is saying in that that I not only don't have the right to retaliate against you, I don't even have the need to retaliate against you. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. It's astonishing, quite frankly, as they bowing down before him again, you know, asking for mercy. And I think it's important to look back at our upbringing, the good, the bad, and the ugly about it. Every single one of us and all our sufferings that we've been through, I believe that one day the Lord will give us a perspective. I don't know if we'll get a particular mountain in the new creation. I can look back and see all the valleys of my life and all the streams and how they all come together. But I don't know. Maybe we won't care because we'll just be in the Lord's presence anymore. You know what I'm saying? But we will discover that it's all for our good. Romans chapter 8. And it's all for his glory. And Joseph is coming, coming very close to saying, God gave me what I would have asked for in my prayers if I knew what he knew. This is theologically rich. Okay, when it has to do with our suffering, my friends. You know, this is, as Galatians says, faith working out itself in love. When Joseph opens his heart and says, am I in the place of God? You know, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. It's a profound doctrine, theological concept. It's a high view of God recognizing that God is the only judge. God is sovereign, even in the the bad stuff in my life. And Joseph is showing this is how it worked out in my life and in my heart, and I'm healed of it. And true Christianity and true authentic discipleship, my friends, frees us to live with Joseph-like joy. In the present. Living joyfully. And it requires us to go back so we can go forward. All right? That's Joseph's response. Well, let's look at his identity. It doesn't stop there. See, Joseph's not the typical dude. The typical guy. All you married women, you know this is to be true, right? You know, guys, you can ask your wives, how do you deal with stress? How do you deal with someone who's wronged you? You know, what do you say? Nah, it's no trouble. It's all right. I'm fine. Well, it hurt you, didn't it? No, I'm good. You know, I'm fine. That's okay. Don't even think about it. Ten years later, you're on the therapist's couch saying that that event really made you mad. You know? No, you see, that's not Joseph. Joseph is not saying, uh, don't bother, brothers. It's okay what you did. He's not saying that. It wasn't okay. He's not just saying, I'm over it. No, it did hurt. But Joseph is not vengeful and he's not in denial about it. He's healed. How? He took his theology of knowing in a personal love relationship with God and all the dealings of God in his life and the grace of God and the sovereignty and providence of God and he used them on his heart. He opens his heart and he says, here's... How I operate. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. And so far, as I've talked about, the evil that worked out for the good was pretty good for Joseph. I mean, after all, he's a man of character. He's been redeemed, as it were. He's put on a path. He now has power and now has money. You meant it for evil and God meant it for good. And if the sentence ended there, if it ended there, we individualists, that our culture is, we might say, okay, you know, the brothers meant it for evil, God meant it for good, now he has great power and self-esteem and money, that's great. But that's not what he's saying. The good is not on Joseph. He says, the second half of verse 20, To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. The NIV, that many people might be saved. (laughs) So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Because we have a tendency in our culture to say, Oh, I guess God, lets bad things happen to me, make me a better person. Well, on one level, God does use the sufferings in our lives. He does. But, you know, atheist philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche said, what does not kill me makes me stronger. We resonate with that. And bad things will make me better. But that's not how Joseph looked at it. Joseph says, this cup of suffering that was given to me actually has been for the saving of lives of others. It's been my life for theirs. I've been put in a position that I could save people. I could save them from famine. And my brothers, I can save you from your sin against me. All this bad stuff made me so that I can be used of God to save many lives. And I think at this point, we have to recognize something as inspiring as an example as Joseph is for us. Not only is he a guy who is forgiving and actually saying, I see him my, myself. Now I have a purpose for my life to save others. That's great. But I send you out of here. If I just ended there and leave him as an example. Most of you are going to think with all the stuff that you've been through in your life, you're going to walk out of here and say, I can't do that. I, I can't be as selfless and wise as Joseph is here. Great example as he is, if you go out and try to live just with that, it'll crush you. You know why? He'll inspire you, but it will also crush you. Because Joseph can't give you this, the power to make you like him. But there is somebody who can. And he's the one who Joseph points to. Don't just look at Joseph as an example. Look at him as a signpost pointing to the one who can give you the power. L- let, me, let me rephrase it this way. The cup of suffering, what he's saying to his brothers is this cup of suffering that you're giving me, you gave me, brothers. It wasn't your cup. It was God's cup for me so that I suffer so that I can save others. Does that remind you of anybody? (laughs) Centuries later, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ came into the world and first he was rejected by his friends, by his family. He's betrayed, sold for silver coins, just like Joseph was sold for silver coins. And when Jesus Christ was arrested, though he wasn't guilty of anything, he was like Joseph was thrown into the dungeon under false pretenses, numbered with the transgressions. And most importantly, when Jesus Christ got into the garden, he talked about a cup. And it was a cup of suffering. And in, from one point of view, it was his enemies who were doing it. And another point of view, it was his friends who were betraying him by being foolish and stupid, and denying him and forsaking him. And you could look at that and say it's that's all mixed together in the cup that they're giving him, but that's not how Jesus saw it. Jesus said, called it his father's cup, because it's through that suffering he would save many. He suffered so, he was raised to the right hand of power, just like Joseph. And once he got to the right hand of power, what did he do? He forgave the people who caused his suffering. He, if you see Jesus Christ as your ultimate Joseph, if you see Jesus Joseph not as just an example, but as a signpost to Christ, and you recognize that he's your Savior and all that he's done for you, even though he came to earth and he died because of our sin, he doesn't blame us. He saw it as a cup that the Father had given him. And he was happy to do it. Just like Joseph here in chapter 50 is happy to do it. He spoke kindly to them. He called their children, your little ones, bring them. Bring them. That's Jesus. And if you believe that and you see him doing that, you're moved by that. If you trust him, it will make you a forgiving person. Actually, you have more resources than Joseph had to be a forgiving person. When we look at the grace of Jesus Christ, and that makes it hard for us to hold grudges. It makes it hard for us to feel superior. And also, when you realize how loved you are, it really does make you a forgiving person. They took your money. Okay, it's just money because my identity isn't there. My true wealth is with Jesus. It's not the main thing anymore. They take your reputation. Well, when you realize your identity's in Jesus Christ, and he, that's the only person you really care about what he thinks of you, what can he rob you of? You have a kind of spiritual emotional wealth in Jesus Christ that makes it possible for you to forgive. Secondly, it makes you absolutely unflappable. You begin to look and look at the cross and see the ultimate example of God bringing good out of evil. The ultimate example of something that made absolutely no sense at the surface. Why would God let this happen? To Jesus, Is it some t- kind of cosmic child abuse, as the liberal theologians call it today? No, Jesus Christ did all this good, and why is God abandoning him and forsaking him? Why? For the saving of many lives. And when you see all that, what Jesus has done for you and God extends it to you? you can look at Ephesians 2.10 and recognize we are God's workmanship prepared for good works for us to walk in. That word workmanship means, it's poema. It means work of art. That each and every one of us, as we've trusted in Jesus' grace for us, is a work of art, uniquely. You know? And it's everything that you've gone through in life not just your age, not just your gender, not just your background, not just your race, but everything mixed in with your experiences, your struggles, and your successes, and your problems. And that means there are some good deeds for you to walk in that only you are qualified for. There are some hands only you can hold. There's some bedsides only you can sit by. There are some ears only you can tell them how much Jesus Christ loves them. Now, you don't have to force a conversation with everybody because Jesus saved people on multiple levels. Joseph saved people on multiple levels, rather. He helped the poor, the hungry, but he also redeemed their, his brothers from their sin. You re- so there's many multiple ways so make a friend and be a friend and listen and ask questions and as God gives you opportunity tell them how much God loves them in Jesus Christ and it's the same with each and every one of us everything that happens to us is for a reason and it's for the saving of many people's lives all around us and so therefore my friends recognizing that each and every one of us are are a piece of God's work, work of art. Let us consider the great love of Jesus. And let's apply this. So number one, this week in our day-by-day daily office and in our readings and our devotions, we're going to really go below the water level of our iceberg. You've heard me describe, and peace described our lives as an iceberg, you know an iceberg is only 10% above water, 90 cents below. Well, we're diving deep now. You know, water's cold, and it's gonna be a little bit shocking at some times, but it's good for us. And that's gonna give us the true freedom that we're longing for from last week, all right? Two, discern the good in and through or in spite of your past. That there is good good somebody may have meant it for evil but god meant it for good all right to be used as part of you being the workman that you're called to be and last make the decision to do the hard work of discipleship and it's work it's work jesus said if anyone would come after me deny himself take up his cross and follow me you're gonna take up a cross it's gonna be work And so as we do that work, I want us to remember the realities that we may not see any of the meaning of all these sufferings and and hardships that we've been through in all our lives. We'll see it on the other side. We'll have that mountain maybe to look at. But in the words of Phillips Brooks, that great American Anglican minister up in Boston, God will waste nothing. 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 There's an invisibility invisibility of God in human affairs that we just can't see. And God is making about making a new you. A new genesis. That's what the word genesis means, a new you, new beginnings. All right? And Proverbs 19:21 reminds us that the purpose of God are at work or are hidden in mysterious ways. See my friends, God's Sovereignty and blessing for the believer can be found in all kinds of situations and all kinds of disastrous circumstances. But let's rejoice that we're his workmanship. Nobody has your thumbprint. So if I'm going to make it cheesy, you're all little beautiful snowflakes. All right? Now let us go. And be a blessing to those around us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we believe you are the God with great purposes. And you placed us in our particular families and a particular place and particular time in history. And we don't see what you see, but we ask you to show us what you see. Lord, the revelation and the purposes you have for each and every one of us in your decisions. We don't want to betray or be ungrateful for what you've given us, and yet at the same time, help us to discern what we need to let go of from our various pasts, and that each and every one of us, what our discipleship issues are in the present, that we must address. Fill us, Holy Spirit. Grant us the courage. Grant us the wisdom to learn from the past and not be crippled by it. And may we, like Joseph, be such a blessing to our earthly families, our church family, and the greater world at large. For in Jesus' name we pray, amen.